Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. We are so thankful that you are listening to the podcast. It is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door of the Wittenberg Church there in Germany and launched what we consider the Protestant Reformation. And so we've been focusing on this as a church family. If you've been listening to any of the other uh, podcast episodes from the sermons on Sunday morning, we've been dealing with Scripture alone and grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone and all of these different themes. And so I want to talk about um, the doctrines of grace in light of the Protestant Reformation. And the five solas came out of the Protestant Reformation. But we also know that an aftermath of the Reformation was the Synod of Dort that met and came up with the five points of the doctrines of grace. And a lot of times people will say, well, you know, are you a five-point Calvinist? Are you a four-point Calvinist? And they want to articulate their theology based upon how many points, per se, that a person is. And I guess that's okay for labels, to label yourself a Calvinist or Reformed. It, it's helpful when we label ourselves to distinguish ourselves from other um, evangelical Christians as far as what we believe. But I think it's more important to, to make, make the argument that we believe certain truths because we see these clearly taught in the Scriptures themselves. It's not that we're following a certain system. It's not that we're following a certain man-made doctrine. It's that we have come to understand the doctrines of grace because the scriptures teach the doctrines of grace. And so what I want to do in this podcast is just look at one passage of scripture. In John chapter 6, I believe you see all of the five points of the doctrines of grace. Now, Tulip is a what we call a mnemonic device to help understand the five points of the doctrines of grace. I don't particularly like some of the titles, um, limited atonement. I'm not that big of a fan of, of the of the title of that, not because I disagree with the doctrine, um, but tulip is is a mnemonic way to understand those teachings. But I think in John chapter six, you actually see all of those five come together nicely from the words of Jesus himself. And so it's got a different acrostic. Um, It's not tulip, it's uplity, okay? U-P-L-T-I is really the order that Jesus presents these in John chapter 6. Just canonically or exegetically, as you look at the passage of Scripture, um, he first begins with unconditional election, then he moves to perseverance of the saints, then limited atonement total depravity and irresistible grace. Uh, Not particularly those actual names. Those are just what the mnemonic device has named those based upon the five points of the doctrines of grace. But let's read this passage of Scripture together and understand how we see these truths emerge. And let me just give you the context because John chapter 6 is a long passage of Scripture. Uh, Jesus has fed the 5,000. And this large group of people have gathered and they are very impressed with Jesus as a miracle worker. And so they want 
to have him meet their physical needs. They actually almost force him to become king. Jesus leaves, goes across the Sea of Galilee, goes over to begin teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. They follow him over to the other side. They, they want more of the, the happy meal. They want more of the physical sustenance that he was able to give them. He does, they do not understand that um, it's a sign. The feeding of the 5,000 is a, is a sign pointing to Jesus as the bread of life. And he begins to explain that he is the bread of life come down from heaven. And so he is the the true source of spiritual sustenance. He is the true source of eternal life. It's not about physical food. It's not about physical bread. It's about trusting, believing, having faith in Christ alone. And so let's pick up in verse 35, John 6, 35. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless... The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written, the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, verse 36 is key to understanding this passage of Scripture. These people had seen Jesus in the flesh. They had heard His teaching. They had seen Him do this powerful miracle of feeding of the 5,000. And yet, what is Jesus' verdict upon them? Verse 36, I said to you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Present active verb there. You're not believing in me. You've seen me, you've heard me, I'm in the flesh in front of you, I've fed you, I've told you I'm the bread of life, demonstrable evidence right in front of me, but you're not believing. Which brings up a huge question. Why are these people not believing? What's the source or what's the cause of their unbelief? Well, this is where Jesus addresses their unbelief in verse 37 and following. So the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture is that the Father has unconditionally given a particular people to Jesus the Son. This is unconditional election. We see this in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
listen to a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. What's that great biblical doctrine? Unconditional election. Jesus teaches sovereign election here very clearly. All that the Father has given to Jesus will infallibly come to Him. Now, why will they come? Why will those that have been given come? Why will they be saved? Why will they have faith in Jesus? Well, because of the giving. The giving of the Father to Jesus precedes their coming. The reason they come is because they were already given, which brings up the question, when were they given? When were these people given to Jesus? When were they chosen? When did this covenant of redemption actually occur? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Jesus has been very clear here about God's sovereign election of his people. Jesus gives eternal life to whom he wills to give eternal life. The Father has given a people to Jesus and they will come in faith. But notice in verse 36, there are some that are not believing. They're not coming in faith. Why? Because they were not given to Jesus by the Father. They are not among the elect. They're not part of that particular group that the Father chose before the creation of the world. And Jesus addresses this in John chapter 10. When he's talking about being the good shepherd, he makes a very interesting statement. In John 10, 25, he says this, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The same wording there, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Almost the same exact situation. Jesus says, I've been teaching you, I've been showing you, but you're not believing. Why are you not believing? The reason you're not believing is because you're not my sheep. You're not among the elect. You're not among that group, that particular group of people that the Father gave to Jesus before the foundation of the world, the elect. Jesus reiterates this in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus gives eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. Down in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Down in verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Again, Jesus makes reference to this group of people that the Father has given to him to bless with eternal life. 
So the father has given to Jesus a particular group of people to be saved, to be chosen unconditionally. There was nothing in the people that moved God the Father to choose them. God was not under any obligation or motivated by any intrinsic worth in these people to give them to Jesus. It was simply out of the good pleasure of God's will. Now we see this doctrine of unconditional election taught all throughout the scriptures. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, the grammar is clear in this text. The reason they believed is because they were already appointed to eternal life. In the sense that they were already among the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. In other words, faith is the fruit of election, not the other way around. In all reputable lexicons, the word appoint there means to designate, to assign, to ordain, to destine. Scholar, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce makes this statement, the Greek participle for appoint has been shown by papyrus evidence for this verb to mean to inscribe or enroll, the idea being enrolled in the book of life. These people who came to faith, who believed, were already enrolled in the book of life. They were already predestined to eternal life. We find this in Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it John's talking about the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Paul says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, before time, for salvation. The word Paul uses here for choose is, is very unique. I think it's only found here in 2 Thessalonians. It really means to, to choose or take for himself. It was, it's somewhat stronger than merely simply just choosing, but it's this whole idea of choosing with good pleasure. Or that God takes great delight in giving this group of particular people to Jesus. So the first thing we see there in verse 37 is unconditional election. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay, what's the second of the five doctrines of grace do we see in this passage of Scripture? Here's second. Jesus will never lose those who have been given to him by the Father. Jesus will never lose those who've been given to him by the Father. This is perseverance of the saints or eternal security or preservation of the saints, whatever you want to call it. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The word never is what we call an emphatic negation in the Greek text. It's, it's, it's a, like a double negative. It's the strongest way in the Greek language to, to, to give a negative. It could be translated, Jesus will, Jesus will never, no, not ever, cast out those that are given to him. He will never cast them out. 
And then look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will lose nothing. Again, we get some wonderful theology from the Greek grammar in this one verse. The word for lose, Jesus will lose nothing. It's from the root word apollomy, apollomy. And the word apollomy is where we get the word perdition or eternal judgment or perishing. What Jesus is saying is here is the elect, those that have been given to him, will never, ever be lost to eternal judgment in hell. Now, here's where the grammar comes into very important understanding. The, The elect have been given. Have been given to Jesus. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has, that he has given me. This is in the perfect tense, which is very strong tense in the Greek language that we don't get in our English language. We don't have a perfect tense in English. It's only in the Greek. It means that an action came to a completion at a point in time in the past, but it has ongoing results that stand completed into the present and into the future. And so in the context of the usage of this word given, it means that the elect were given to Jesus at a point in time. When? Before time. And they will continue to be given to Jesus into the future. It's an action that came to completion in the past with ongoing effects. In other words, what God gave to Jesus in eternity past will never be lost and will forever continue to be in Christ's possession. That's eternal security. That is perseverance of the saints. The elect will be kept, will be preserved, will be given eternal life and they can never fully nor finally fall away from the faith or be lost. Remember what Jesus said in John 10. 27 through 30. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jude 24, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So truth number one, unconditional election. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Truth number two, all that the Father gives me will come to me and those that are given, will never be lost. They will be raised up on the last day. Jesus will keep them. Jesus will preserve them. This is eternal security. This is perseverance of the saints. But what's the third truth? The third of the doctrines of grace, Jesus finished the work God gave him to accomplish by dying for his people. This is particular redemption. Look at verse 38, John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
Jesus was sent on a mission to accomplish the will of his Father. Now, what was the will of his Father? Well, it involves a lot of things. It involves the incarnation coming in the flesh. It involves fulfilling all the requirements of the law. It, it, it involves going to the cross and dying in our place. It involves the resurrection. It involves the ascension, all of the work of Christ. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus emphatically accomplished the work God gave him to do and did everything necessary to secure our salvation. That word accomplished means completed, finished, perfected. It's what we call the finished work of Christ on the cross. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This mission, this work, this accomplishment would involve everything about Jesus. Not just his death on the cross, but his perfect life, whereby he fulfilled all of God's law that we could never keep. It involved the cross as well as the resurrection. Interestingly, the word Jesus used here for accomplished, I came here to accomplish the work you gave me to do, is is, is from the same root Greek word of the words that Jesus cried on the cross right before he gave up his spirit. In John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished is the, is the same Greek root word for accomplished. It's tetelestai, means paid in full. It's been fully accomplished. All the work is finished. It's complete. Again, that is in the perfect tense, which means that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that work was fully accomplished. He did everything necessary to secure our salvation. Not only was it a one-time finished work, but the effects of that atonement continue into the present. It's, it's a lasting redemption. It's a once and for all completed victory that stands. It's the strongest way in the Greek language to convey a finished work. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, save completely, absolutely. And then Hebrews 9.12, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured an eternal redemption through his cross. That word secure, some translations use the word obtain or attain. It really carries the idea almost that Jesus experienced everything necessary or finished the work required to purchase our salvation. And may I remind you, this is not a hypothetical reality where Jesus just simply makes salvation possible. He didn't just make salvation a possibility. He finished the work that God required him to do. He completed God's will. He, he came to secure the salvation of all those that the Father gave him. All those that the Father gave to Jesus will come to him. He'll never lose one of them. He'll raise them up on the last day. Why? Because he completed God's will. He accomplished the mission. He perfected them through the cross. It was a definite 
atonement that actually procured God's people. So first we've seen unconditional election. Second, we've seen perseverance of the saints. Third, we've seen definite or particular redemption. But let's look at the fourth truth that emerges from Jesus' words. Fourth, we are born spiritually dead and unable to come to Christ due to the guilt of sin. This is total depravity, total inability. Let's keep reading Jesus' words. They're grumbling about him because he's saying, I'm the bread of life. They're questioning his origin. Is this not Jesus, the guy we, we met growing up? We know his parents. What's he talking about? And then in verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Down in verse 65, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now the wording here in the original language, no one can come, means inherent ability. It's the Greek word dunamis. It actually means power. No one has the power. No one has the ability in and of themselves to come to Christ in faith. No one has the power. No one has the ability. My wife is a second grade teacher. And let's say one of her students comes up to her, raises his hand and says, Mrs. Cole, can I use the bathroom? And my wife says, I don't know. Can you? Do you have the physical ability? Of course. That's not the question. The question that the student's asking my wife is, may I use the restroom? Do I have your permission, Mrs. Cole? It's not an issue of permission. It's an issue of of ability. Well, when Jesus is talking here, it's not an issue of permission. It's It's an issue of ability. No one has the ability in and of themselves to come to Christ in faith. Why? Because we're spiritually dead. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are enslaved to our flesh. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to the world. We're spiritually dead. We're children of wrath. We are unable to come because of spiritual and moral inability. Paul says it in Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice Paul's wording here. The lost mind, the unregenerate mind, the person who's not a believer cannot submit to God's law, cannot please God. It doesn't simply say that they won't please God, but that they cannot. Again, speaking of ability, they lack the ability to submit to God's law. They lack the ability to come in faith. They're spiritually dead. And what's the one thing that pleases God the most? Coming to faith in His Son, Jesus. You, in your bondage to sin, cannot please God, cannot submit to God, cannot come to Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me. Jesus teaches moral and spiritual inability to come to faith in Him. Which leads us to the fifth truth. Okay, so we've seen unconditional election, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me. We've seen perseverance of the saints. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I will lose none that he's given me. We see number three, a particular redemption. Jesus came to do the will of him who sent, who sent him. He came to accomplish the work of the Father, which is uh, procuring atonement, salvation, redemption for his people. Uh, number four, total inability, total depravity. No one can come. But here's the fifth. The Holy Spirit must overcome your deadness by granting you new life and drawing you to Jesus. Okay, this is irresistible grace. This is effectual calling. This is sovereign regeneration. Whatever term you want to use. Notice the unless in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Same thing in verse 65. Unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, what does it mean that God draws us? What does it mean that God has to grant us this ability to come? Well, the word for drawing, from, from, from a pretty reputable lexicon, defines it this way. Draw with the implication that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or in the case of persons, is unwilling to do so voluntarily, in either case with implication of exertion on the part of the mover. Okay, whether it's an inanimate object or whether it's a person, it lacks the ability to move itself forward. It lacks the ability to come. It lacks the ability either voluntarily or by its own incapacity to do anything, to move, and thus has to be moved upon. The idea behind this is that a person not only can't come to Christ, but they don't want to come to Christ. So it's an issue of, of willing. They don't will or want to come to Christ. And ability, they can't come to Christ. So God must overcome this unwillingness. God must overcome this deadness. God must overcome this inability by working and moving and drawing so that the sinner will come. In other words, this drawing is effectual in the sense that when God draws, the sinner will come. In verse 65, Jesus used the same terminology, but changes it from drawing to granting or gracing. The word here in the original language means to grant as a gift. In other words, this ability, this willingness to come to Christ is not something that you and I have. We can't. So in order for us to come, we have to be drawn effectually. We have to be graced effectually. It's a gift that God gives to the sinner. You as a sinner who are spiritually dead in bondage cannot come unless the Father grants you the gift of grace, the ability to come. That's why in that same passage of Scripture, John 6, 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Spirit has to give life. The Spirit has to regenerate. The Spirit has to effectually call. The Spirit has to draw. The Spirit has to enable. Why? Because in your flesh and your bondage to sin, you're helpless. You're dead. You're incapable of coming. The flesh is of no help at all. In the original language here, the wording here conveys benefit or assistance. Your, your flesh can't help you at all. It can't aid you at all. It can't benefit you at all. It, can't, it doesn't assist you. It's not like prevenient grace where God gives you a little bit of grace and then you can get yourself over the hump. No, you have to be given life by the Spirit. You lack the desire. You lack the ability to come to Christ if left to yourself. 
D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, says this, The need for the divine initiative which draws those whom the Father has given to the Son and enables them to believe, this genuine coming to faith is never finally a matter of autonomous human decision. You don't just, in your own free will, decide to come to faith in Christ. You lack the ability, you must be given the ability to come through the drawing effectually and through the granting. F.F. Bruce again, famous New Testament scholar. Quote, none can come to Christ in faith, but those who are persuaded and enabled to do so by the Spirit. But all these will come, drawn by the irresistible grace of heavenly love, and no one who comes is rejected. A dead rebel sinner cannot control whether he or she repents or comes to Christ. God must grant it or draw or sovereignly overcome the deadness through the means of effectual regeneration. I've been rereading Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will as we're thinking about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's his classic work. It's probably the one that he said probably should be the only thing that he wrote that would last um, into uh, you know perpetuity or you know last the one that people need to read, and obviously it's an argument against Erasmus on this whole issue is is free will a reality, and I love what Martin Luther says about this particular passage of scripture. He says, "quote When the Father draws and teaches him inwardly, there follows a drawing other than that which is outward. Christ is then displayed by the enlightening of the Spirit." And by it, man is wrapped to Christ with the sweetest rapture. He being passive while God speaks, teaches, and draws rather than seeking or running himself. Uh, when God draws you, when God through the Holy Spirit effectually cause, calls you, Christ is the sweetest rapture. You're joyfully, powerfully made willing to come, and Jesus looks beautiful to you for the very first time. Now, here's the rub for me. When I was struggling with the truths of understanding the doctrines of grace uh, 15, 20 years ago or so, I always believed that God had to draw, God had to woo, God had to somehow convict sinners to come, but, but I believed that ultimately the choice was up to us whether we used our free will to come or not. It was a prevenient grace, it was an assisting grace, but ultimately we could resist that grace. But this verse teaches that only those who've been given to Jesus will come. And why will they come? Because they've been drawn. And all those drawn will be raised up on the last day. So here was the big issue for me. I began to understand this text and, and actually see it for what, it's, what it states and what Jesus is saying. And I came to the realization that God must not draw everyone. Because this drawing, this granting to, to come was only limited to the elect, all that the Father had given to Jesus. And this drawing was efficacious in that those who were drawn did infallibly come and they were raised up on the last day. In other words, it was irresistible. In other words, if you take the route that everyone is drawn, then you 
begin to believe that it could lead you to believe in universalism. Because if everyone's drawn and everyone comes and everyone's raised up on the last day, because the efficacious nature of the drawing, those whom draw God draws will come, then you're left with either two choices. One, universalism, everybody that God draws will come, everybody will be saved, or you've got a limited aspect in the drawing. God only draws the elect, only the elect come. It's an irresistible drawing. Now, the Bible uses many metaphors or images to describe what happens when God sovereignly overcomes your spiritual deadness, and God frees your will so that you will come to faith in Christ. The Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Notice who's doing all the action. It's God. God's taking out your old dead heart. God's replacing it with a new heart. You can't do that in and of yourselves. Acts 16, 14. One of those who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Again, who opens whose heart? Does Lydia open her heart? No, God opens her heart. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Who makes whom alive? Do we make ourselves alive or does God make us alive? No, God makes us alive by grace. Why does God have to make us alive? Because we were dead. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's sovereign grace alone. How does Paul describe it here? As as, as a regeneration, as a making alive. The Spirit gives life and causes us to be born again. Regeneration comes before faith. It's very crucial. You don't believe first and then get born again. You're born again first, and the first thing you do is believe. How were you physically born as a baby? Did, did, you, any, did you do anything to cause your birth? Did you cause yourself to be born? What caused you to be pushed out of your mother's womb was under God's sovereign design. There is a nine-month pregnancy, and under normal circumstances, when that nine-month period is ended, there's a thing called labor, and you are born. It's called the miracle of childbirth. What's the first thing you did when you were born, when you came out of your mother's womb? You cried out. Now think about your spiritual birth. Do you somehow cause yourself to be born again? Do you give yourself life? No, you can't because you're dead. But when the Holy Spirit grants you life and the Father effectually draws you to Himself and when you're made alive, when you're born again, when you're regenerated, what's the first thing you do? You cry out. You cry out in repentance and faith and come to Christ. So we've seen the five doctrines of grace in this passage of Scripture. Unconditional election, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Perseverance of the saints, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Definite atonement, particular redemption. Jesus came to accomplish the will of him who sent me. It was a definite plan, he accomplished it. It is finished, it's the finished work of Christ. 
We see number four, total depravity, total inability. No one can come to me. And then finally, we see the irresistible grace or effectual calling or sovereign regeneration unless the Father who sent me draws him or grants him and I will raise him up on the last day. But I want to point out one final truth. When the Holy Spirit gives you new life, here's the joy. You will come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. You will come. If you've been given by the Father to Jesus, you will come. If you've been drawn by the Holy Spirit, you will come. If the Spirit has given you life, you will come. If the Father grants you the ability to come as a gift, you will come. Jesus does not say that you may come. You might come, but that you will come. So here's the powerful truth. Nothing can stop you from coming to Jesus once you've been given life by the Spirit. No matter how sinful you've been, no matter how spiritually dead and rebellious you've been, no matter how guilty, no matter how helpless you are, no how much sin you've stacked up in your life on your record, no amount of sin, no amount of guilt, no amount of shame or rebellion can overcome God's sovereign power to save you when He gives you life in an instant. He powerfully overcomes all those spiritual barriers and grants you life and you will come in faith to Christ. You will repent of your sins. You will place all of your trust in Christ. This gives us great confidence in God that salvation from first to last is a sovereign, monergistic work of God. We can do evangelism with the confidence that when we preach the gospel, the sheep will hear His voice and they will come. We can pray for lost people knowing that if they are among the elect, they will come. We don't have to resort to manipulation or arm twisting or slick marketing or emotional appeals to somehow get a person to make a decision. We simply proclaim the gospel with boldness and clarity and see God do the work of bringing spiritually dead sinners to himself. You see, the doctrines of grace humble us in worship. We fall to our knees in worship that God would save a wretch like me. The doctrines of grace empower us in our evangelism. We can go out with confidence that the sheep will hear His voice, and when they hear His voice, they will come. The doctrines of grace assure us that God will sustain us to the end. We won't be lost. He'll lose none that have been given to Him, but raise us up on the last day. And the doctrines of grace encourage us that no sinner is beyond the reach of God's sovereign arm of salvation. And maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I never have actually placed my trust in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. And I'm under deep conviction right now, even as you're speaking. I know I'm dead in my sin. I know I can't please God. I know I can't do anything to earn my way to be accepted by a holy God. I am sinful. I am helpless. I am hopeless. I am hellbound. All I can do is cry out for mercy. And the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
You see, the condition for salvation is repentance and faith. No one is saved without repenting and believing. Election means that you're elect unto salvation, but actual salvation comes when you repent and believe. So would you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus? And if you do, you will find the arms open wide of an all-sufficient Savior who stands ready, willing, and able to save you to the utmost from your sins. On this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, would you worship God for His sovereign grace alone in saving you from first to last? He chose you unconditionally before the foundation of the world. He will keep you infallibly to the end and you'll never be lost. Jesus came to accomplish a definite atonement that actually purchased your salvation. You in no way can contribute to your salvation because you're spiritually dead, you're lost, you cannot please God, but praise be to God that He sent the Holy Spirit to effectually draw you, to regenerate you so that you would come in repentance and faith. Praise the shepherd that he laid down his life for the sheep. And if the shepherd, Jesus, is calling you to himself, you will come and you will find joy in his presence alone. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Understanding Christianity. I hope that you're going to have a great Reformation Sunday at your church. We're going to have a celebration on Sunday night where we're going to look at the five solas. We're going to look at five particular um, reformers that, and do a brief history on Martin Luther, John Calvin, William Tyndale, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Knox. And then we're going to break up into teams where the different teams are going to have to go to five different stations and they're going to play some fun games together. And then afterwards, we're going to have cake and ice cream with a big cake that has happy Reformation Day on it. And so we just really want our church to understand how we're part of this stream of God's grace and bringing about the Reformation. Would you do us a favor and go to iTunes and give us a favorable review and rating? We'd love to, to hear from you. Give us a review. You can find us on seancole.net is my website where all the Understanding Christianity information is. You can also go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Well, thank you for listening. May God bless you. May God keep you. May God cause His face to shine upon you. And until next time, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Thank you.